pray your blessing on what I'm about to say. And we, we pray that you would just open our hearts and that you would prepare us for the days ahead. That you would prepare us for the opportunities that are ahead of us. That we don't even know are ahead. But that are there. I pray that you would prepare us for the opportunities that we're not yet aware of. Amen. I, I want to tell you... Um, I just had this thought a, a minute ago that, you know, there are the opportunities that are ahead of us that, that we, let me say this, like, we have this vision, and this is where we're going, and we think we're like, we're going to do this, and we're going to do, and here's my, my plan, my five-step plan to get to this place I feel God's called me to. And by the way, you know I'm not devaluing that at all, right? So I believe in that. I believe in having a vision. I, if you don't know that by now, then I don't know how you got the third year. But so, you know, so I want you to know that I have a high value for that. But I also um, know that sometimes the Lord has, I feel like what I'm saying is prophetic right now. I actually have a plan for what I'm going to share with you. I've made the plan up 15 minutes ago and it's really good. But I feel like I'm supposed to tell you this. Um, Sometimes on the way to look for your donkeys, you find your destiny. Now, that's not the first time I've said that. But, you know, uh, with reference to Saul. So Saul is out doing something practical. He's, you know, we say he's looking for his donkeys, but I mean, that's actually his job. He's doing what he thinks he's supposed to do, inherit his father's farm. So he's out doing what he does every day. And, his, you know, you lose the donkeys, and the father's like, why don't you go find those? It's not a big deal. He goes out, he's looking for the donkeys. And in the middle of that, he finds his destiny. And where I'm going there is that I don't, uh, I don't know if you're going to end up where you think you're going to end up. I just know that you're preparing for where God knows you're going to end up. And the challenge is, is that sometimes God will let you chase butterflies thinking that you're going this way and He'll actually use all that preparation like you think you're preparing for this amazing thing and so you are really motivated to prepare, but that's not where you're going at all. And I was thinking in my life, um, you know, I, I mean, my story, you guys have probably been, you've heard my story so many times, so I don't want to bore you with the details, but I do want to uh, encourage you with, you know, my, my dream was to, I mean, when I met Jesus, I, I think that I've always been a radical believer. Now, you know, that's ebbed and flowed as far as the emotion of it. You know, uh, just like it, it has for you and it always will for you. You know, there's times when you're like, all you can think of is Jesus. And there's other times that you, you manage your relationship with Jesus like you manage a marriage. And I've been married 40 years this year. So, you know, if you want to have a good marriage, you, you, uh, you, you passionately love your wife when you feel like it and when you don't. And, uh, you know, obviously the girls with the husband. Like, you, you do what you would do when you're passionate when you don't feel like it. You want to have a great relationship with Jesus? When you feel like loving Jesus, you, you do certain things. And when you don't feel it, when you still do those certain things, that's how you have a good relationship. So, you know, I, I'm, I think I'm very much like most anyone. Like, there are times when I'm very passionate about following Jesus, and when I'm not passionate I still do the same things I do when I'm passionate. Uh, I like it much better when I feel it. I'm sure everyone could say a big amen to that. I like it much better when I when I wake up in the morning and I look over at my wife and I think, you are the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. I'm so glad I'm married to you. But those other times when I, when I roll over and see my wife and I'm like, good. I behave the same way because I know that my feelings come and go, and, but my, my resolve to love this woman remains the same. And so, you know, my passion in life has always been for Jesus, but 
No, there's no but. Always been for Jesus. And I've always taught, my, in, since I've uh, known the Lord, probably uh, four years after I met the Lord, I started teaching. Now, obviously, that would, took on a totally different, when I first started, it was like, I belonged to a home group, and my home group leader would sometimes say, hey, Chris, why don't you teach next week? You know, so it began like that. And, and it was like 15, 20 minutes. So I'm just saying, since I started, since I've known the Lord, pretty much from the beginning, I have always done something where I shared publicly, in, in a small group, I should say. Um, and then um, later on, you know, I started to, to be kind of known for teaching, so I taught more often than when I met Bill, when Bill would be sick or couldn't be there on a Sunday before uh, we had an associate pastor, I typically taught, so, and then later on, you know, and then I had a youth group, and so I typically taught an average probably four times a week. I've taught, you know, probably for 30, 30 years, four, 35 years, for four times a week, you know, so I've always taught, but my passion was really to build a business. And, and I, I, I like to teach, I like to help people, I always have, but I really enjoyed doing business. So, you know, my, my passion for, you know, all my early years with the Lord was really to build a, a really beautiful kingdom business. And when I met Bill, the first, the first couple years I met Bill, you know, Bill, what Bill, one of the things Bill did for me is he validated that uh, there's no such thing as secular. I heard that mes- message the first year I met Bill. He would say, Seek first the kingdom. In fact, I remember this first time I ever heard it was profound to me. And I understand it's not to you anymore. But he taught us Matthew chapter 6. I mean, you've heard it so many times. Matthew chapter 6. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So, and, and I you know, obviously knew that scripture really well. Bill taught it. The very first time Bill taught it, I could actually picture exactly where I was sitting in the congregation. And Bill taught, seek first the kingdom. And he said, most people have a list. First the kingdom, then your family or then your, you know, ministry, however the list goes. And he said, and I still remember the profound, this thing just blew up in my head. He said, that's not what the Bible says. He said, he said, do the kingdom and don't do anything else. And then he started talking about when I'm, you know, our kids were little at the time. You know, when, I, when I'm playing with Eric, when I'm throwing the ball with Eric out, outside, and Eric was about four at the time, he said, I'm doing the kingdom. And he just began to demonstrate simple things that, you know, that we do every day. And he said, that's the kingdom. And then, and then he started talking about the fact that, I mean, the very first time he taught, he didn't have it all worked out. But he started talking about the fact that I don't do anything unless it's the kingdom. There's no such thing as secular work when I receive the king. Well, that thing just went, poof, in me. Because I'm like, wait a second. So when I, I'm building a business, but I'm actually building the kingdom. And that was the first time in my mind, in my heart, that I could homogenize in my thinking what I was doing. And it, and it, it so dramatically, had such a dramatic impact on me that literally like, you know, it's not like Bill's doing something really important and I'm doing this job. And what I'm really doing that's important is four times a week I'm teaching. So like I'm building this business and that's kind of how I make my living. But over here I'm, I'm teaching, you know, as the youth uh, a pastor, and I was a home group pastor, and so I was like, this is what I'm really doing for the kingdom, and this is kind of what I do to make a living, and that morning, in 10 minutes, Bill took my life, and he goes, no, this is what you're doing for the king, and it dramatically shifted everything I did that day, because I'm like, I went to work the next morning, went to work, and I'm like, I'm at work for the king, and the goal, and Bill didn't say all this in the first teaching, like, it, it evolved. And I think some of the evolution, Bill and I were very close, is, I don't, I don't know how, Bill, how it evolved in Bill, it's not, I'm almost going to take credit for it, but some of our conversations, I could feel like we would have lunch together often, and I would say, when you said that, this is what happened inside of me. Like, I went to work the next day, and I'm like, this business is a place where people are supposed to encounter the king. Not religion, not preach to people. In fact, I didn't like, I had a lot of Christian employees at first. I didn't want my employees to preach to people. I, I just wanted them to serve the way the Queen of Sheba got served. Anyway, it dramatically shifted the way I thought about what I was doing. And it went from doing good work and then God work, and all my work became God work. And you can imagine for a, a person as passionate as I am how that shifted everything I did. And I started thinking, you know, the band worships with you know, guitars and drums 
and so on, so on and so forth. And I, at the time, I, was, I, I had a repair shop. I had a, a service station at the time when, when uh, actually, I was working in a repair shop at the time when Bill shared that message. And I, I'm like, my worship instruments are wrenches and instruments and oscilloscope. Like, this is my worship to the Lord. And I began to think of it like, when I'm fixing someone's car, I'm serving the Lord. Like, I'm doing this onto the Lord. Like, if someone can give a cup of water to someone else, and, that, and the Lord could go, you did it to me, I'm like, why can't I do this thing I'm doing in a way no one's ever done before? And, and you've heard my stories. And so I, as, as time went on, this probably about a, what I'm telling you about right now is probably a two-year uh, process for me. Bill was also teaching at night. We were, we were doing this thing on a, a series on the gifts of the Spirit, which at that time was, as you can imagine, very simple. Like, it was very simple. Not that what we're doing right now is profound, but, like, you know, it was the very foundation of what we were learning, just very simple. And we were practiced. And, and, and when Bill started talking about teaching about words of knowledge, and in those days, words of knowledge weren't uh, for healing. We didn't do words of knowledge for healing in those days. I, I started getting this idea, like while we were, like while Bill was teaching, like, well, if it works on people, I wonder if it works on cars. Like, I know this sounds really crazy, but I'm like, you, you know how things that are so obvious today were not so obvious then. So, like, like the idea that the Holy Spirit would actually know about cars. <laughs> I understand. I even sound ignorant when I'm saying this now, but at the time, that didn't seem. Like, I had never heard anybody say, well, Holy Spirit knows about electronics. Holy Spirit knows about cars. Holy Spirit knows everything. Actually, Holy Spirit knows, like, if a man knows it, Holy Spirit knows it a hundred times more. Those ideas in those days were not, if people thought that, they didn't talk about it. So I started having these ideas like, well, Holy Spirit knows about people who seem, their anatomy seemed very complex, then he probably knows about electronics and cars. So I started, without telling people at first, like laying hands on cars. Because I, I, you know, I was a diagnostician. My job, most of my job, in my own shop, I had like five guys working for me. My own, my, my own, uh, my particular job, what I did that the other guys didn't do is I diagnosed the cars and they fixed them. And in those days, you know, this is the beginning of electronic, cars having electronics. So it was the transition between... Uh, Guys being mechanics and guys being technicians. So, you know, most guys just worked on cars. They didn't, you know, the idea of electronics and all that, that was like, you know, you can imagine, you know, cars are super technical now. We have IT guys actually working on cars, which is a wholly different thing. In those days, you know, you, you, you tried to do both and most guys couldn't. Not, you know what I'm saying. Anyway. So I, I, I was in that transition year. So I, so I would lay hands on my cars when I couldn't figure out what was wrong with them, and the Holy Spirit would start telling me what was wrong with them. So it was like, wow, this is kind of Sean Bolts of cars. <laughs> I am going someplace with this. So, you know, all of that just began to be like, wow, this is going to be amazing, and the Holy Spirit's really anointing what I'm doing, and I'm doing it for the Lord, and this is what... Now, now what I wanted to do as a kid is actually like, wow, Holy Spirit put this in my heart, and I'm going to do this. And I'm going to be in the automotive business, and I'm going to bless people, and the kingdom's going to be extended. And so, you know, I spent a lot, a lot of years, obviously 20 years, having my own businesses, and, you know, uh, eight years before that, working for other people. My point is this, is that I did everything to prepare for this, and had no idea I was going to be doing this. But everything I did to prepare for that, I didn't even know I was going to do this. But if you would have said, hey, you're going to do this, I would have prepared like that. But I didn't know I was preparing for that. I thought I was preparing for that. I didn't know I was preparing for this. I didn't know I was, going to pre- I didn't know I was preparing to stand up and lead a school. I didn't know I was going to do any of that. I didn't know I was going to travel the world and talk to politicians and business people. And, but, you know, when I was, like, praying for cars... To ask the Holy Spirit what's wrong, I was preparing to speak to leaders of, of nations. Because what, what I didn't realize is that the confidence that I was learning 
in ministering to an inanimate object and ultimately to its owner, that confidence is what I take into the offices of kings. And sometimes when I walk in there, I have to remind myself, like, hey, you didn't know what you were doing there. You know, it's all this electronic technical stuff. You didn't know what to do, so you started asking me. And you don't know what you're doing here. So what's the difference? Just get the information you need and give it to him instead of the car. Just do the same thing you always did. That thing you did in the wilderness right there, killing lions and bears, this is no different. See that big giant right there? He's against this flock, and you just need to take him out. I didn't know I was preparing for that. So what I'm getting at is probably obvious by now. You have this idea where you're going, and I think you should have an idea, because I think the Lord sometimes allows us to chase donkeys or chase a, a, um, a career even if it seems like a holy career, and we're chasing this career, and while we're chasing this career, God's got a whole nother one planned for us. And it's, like, you know, and it's like, well, what if I get here five years and it's just a waste of time? It's never a waste of time. Like, nothing you do is ever a waste of time if you dedicate your life to the king, because the king knows where you're going, and he goes, I know you think you're going over there, but actually you're going over there, but I'm going to let you get over there that way. And I, I may have said this in this... No, I, no, I haven't. Uh, I heard um, Mark Sharona say something I think is profound. Now, the day he, I, he said it, I thought it was good. In the last few months, I thought, nah, that was profound. And he said it three years ago in a conference I was in. He may have said it a hundred times. I don't know. He said, God doesn't have a plan for your, house, your life. God doesn't have a plan for your life. He said, Jeremiah 29, 11, where it says, I know the plans I have for you. And by the way... Mark is a Hebrew scholar. He said that word plan doesn't mean plan. Actually, everywhere else in the Bible is translated purpose. God doesn't have a plan for your life. He has a purpose. And he has 50 ways to get you to there. He has 50 plans to get you to your purpose. What I'm getting at is this. God doesn't have what he said, and I think it's profound. God doesn't have a plan for your life. He has a purpose for your life. If he had a plan for your life, then you could screw up the plan. But he doesn't have a plan. He has a purpose. Plans belong to man, but the answer of the tongue belongs to the Lord. The Lord has a purpose for your life, and he has 50 plans to get you there. Now, I've said this a long time ago before I heard Mark say that, but I've said that I don't think Joseph had to go to the pit and the prison to get to the palace. I'm saying I think there was lots of ways to the palace. I'm not saying there's lots of ways to heaven, you know, don't. Don't take the metaphor somewhere else. I know, only Jesus. I'm talking about plans in our life. I'm talking about on this side, cross. I'm saying, I don't think Joseph had to go to the pit to get to the prison. I don't think he had to go to prison. I'm sorry. I don't think he had to go to the pit and the prison to get to the palace. I don't think he had to be Potiphar's slave. I don't think he had to do any of that. I'm saying, the Lord had a purpose. The purpose was, you're going to be a ruler of a nation. That was his purpose. Joseph chose the plan. His arrogance demanded certain responses. Not from God, from people. You know, so when he knows his brothers are jealous of him, and how many of you know Joseph can't be stupid if he's leading a, a country, and he knows his brothers are jealous of him and that his father favors him, and then he comes out and tells his brothers, hey, I have this vision, this dream, you're going to bow down to me. How many know not the wisest thing a boy's ever done in his life. So I'm saying his arrogance required a certain plan, but his humility could have required a different plan. I'm saying God has a lot of ways to get you to your purpose. I think you determine the plan by your attitudes, not necessarily your aptitude. I think that God has a way to get you to your purpose. And right now, you're in this room today. You may not be in this room tomorrow, but today you're in this room. And I'd suggest that God had a plan. God had a purpose for you to be in this room, hearing this message, and it's maybe not the message you want to hear. It's maybe not the message you need today. It may indeed be the message you need seven years from now. And you may have 500 
may have a thousand messages that you hear from, here, from now to seven years from now, and the message that you need to hear might be this message seven years from now may be the only message you can remember. And I say that from the fact that I remember messages that Bill shared. You know, I, I was, and I, I'd hear Bill an average of two times a week for, you know, how many years. And there are certain messages that stand out to me today that I'm not even sure I remembered back then. But the Lord has a way of bringing up things that are hidden and bringing them to my memory when I need them. Am I making any sense to you? I'm saying, yeah, so what am, I, what am I trying to say? I'm saying the best thing you can do is go after the dream you have right now. If you don't have a dream, serve somebody else's, right? And realize that even stuff that happened on the other side of you knowing Jesus was actually preparation for where you're going and who you're going to be. You know, Moses was raised in Pharaoh's house. Of course, we know that. But I'd like to suggest that Moses didn't know God until he ran into him at the bush. But God knew Moses. And God made sure that Moses had prince training long before he was a prince. And so, you know, you might be training at Starbucks to lead a megachurch or a movement. And if, you, if you're at Starbucks and you're like, I don't know where I'm going, but I know that if I do this as if I were leading a movement... Someday I'm going to get to lead a movement or I'm going to get to lead something, whatever it is that God has in mind for me, but I'm going to do this as if I'm changing the world. I always believe that there are certain people that get to do extraordinary works and there are not very many people in the world who, can do, who do extraordinary works. I, I don't think that I'm one. I don't think I've done anything extraordinary as far as works. I do think that I've done some works in an extraordinary way. And I'd propose, it's do your works in such a way that people see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What I'm getting at is like, it's more important how you do your work than it is the work you do. Because if you do extraordinary, if you do ordinary work in an extraordinary way, someday you might get to do something extraordinary. But if you do ordinary works in an extraordinary way, every day you're doing something extraordinary. <laughs> I'm saying someday you might get to speak to the leader of Russia, and you're like, I got to do something extraordinary. I'm going to tell you how you get to do that. You do ordinary things in a way no one's ever done before. And when God sees you doing ordinary things in a way no one's ever done before, God goes, okay. I'm going to let you pop out and do something extraordinary. And there are a few people that their whole life's extraordinary, but there's just not very many you know, people like that. But I think that every believer can do the thing you do in a way no one's ever done before. I think you should anticipate and expect it. I was working in my wood shop yesterday, sorry, digressing. Am I boring you? I was working in my wood shop yesterday. I have a really cool wood shop. I mean, it, it's really cool. Like, I really like it. I actually like, I actually probably meet God out there more than any other place consistently, besides my bathtub. There's <laughs> the two places, like, the two places I meet God, my wood shop and my bathtub. Yeah, it's actually funny, but it's actually true. I was out there yesterday just, you know, doing what I do, just tinkering around. Nothing, no project, just messing around and making my shop better. And the Lord said to me, how about if you and I work together in this shop, and when people walk in here, they're going to know you had a relationship with God. I'm like, that would be awesome. Yeah, how about if you invent some things in here, and the way things work, and the way dispensers happen and the way you set things up what if it's like what if what if you come in here and pray and i show you how to do some stuff so that was yesterday afternoon so I, this is going to be a good year i'm going to walk in here and i'm gonna like how do you do something ordinary that most people don't care about in a way that god's involved in this is going to be fun this is going to be a cool journey 
when I drove up today, when I got to the building, the Lord said, talk to them about perseverance. And he said, he told me, it's the hallmark of your life. Make sure you say something about it. So I think I already did. But I hope you hear my points like, you get great by doing ordinary things in extraordinary ways. And let me add this part, when you don't feel like it. When you, you don't feel up, you, don't feel, you feel tired, maybe you feel discouraged, I'm saying whatever. We all have these feelings. You don't feel like bringing your A game, you bring your A game. Bill, Bill once said to me when he uh, first came to, to uh, Mountain Chapel, it was called Calvary Chapel at the time, I was a youth pastor and I had about, I don't know, I probably averaged around 12 kids in my youth group. And, and about seven of those were elders' kids who were forced to come. <laughs> Bill Derrybray made his three kids come, which is good. And uh, I, had, I remember my first uh, breakfast with Bill Johnson. He was maybe there two months, and he said to me, if you, if you teach like you're teaching a 1,000 when you're teaching your 12, someday you'll get to teach a 1,000. And then he said, if you prepare like, you, like you're teaching a thousand, someday you'll get to teach a thousand. So I know I'm a pretty literal thinker. So I used to spend hours preparing for my message for my 12 people. And I would, before I'd prepare, I would lay on my face and I would picture preaching to a thousand people. Then I would prepare like I was doing a thousand people. Then I would share like I was doing a thousand people. I had to kind of tone it down because. <laughs> it was kind of funny because, you know, because I was preparing for a thousand people, I'd have these 12, and instead of doing what you do with 12 people, I would like preach to them like they were a thousand. Now, I don't think that's exactly what Bill was trying to have me do, but. And uh, it took about a year for me to figure out that, <laughs> you know, that actually you, uh, you share a little differently with, you know, 12 people than you do with 1,000, even though you're thinking about 1,000. You know, what I, I see a lot of people rise to the occasion, but I don't see a lot of people rise when there's no occasion. Um, I, you know I love basketball and football, and... A lot of times, especially in, in basketball, did I say basketball and football? Yeah. A, a lot of times in basketball, they'll say, the commentators will say, this team plays to the level of its opponent. That's not the way to be an NBA champion, and it's not the way to live for God. Like, if you just rise to the occasion, then the only time you rise is when you have an occasion, and I guarantee you, God won't give you lots of occasions. If you rise every day as if there was going to be occasion, then you'll figure out why certain people get occasions and why others don't. I don't like the idea that, the, I don't like the way grace has been taught in the last 20 years. I'll tell you I have a problem with, and I don't think I have a problem with the way it's been taught here. At least I can't think that I do. I'm just trying to be honest. But um, the way I see it taught when I travel and the way I see it expressed in, in social media, I don't agree with it at all. I don't agree that grace in any way keeps you from working hard. I think when you teach grace in a way that makes people feel like they don't have to work hard, I don't think that's God's grace. And I look at people who taught grace in the Bible, for instance, Jesus and Paul, and I think that Jesus was one of the hardest working people I've ever not met. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? in the flesh. When I look at Jesus's, you know, schedule and, you know, uh, you, you know, one of the hardest jobs in the world, I forgive you. One of the j hardest jobs in the world is fishing. So, you know, when you got at least three fishermen on your team and they're like tired, you know, you've worked pretty hard and Jesus outworked everybody. Jesus is, the, they're all like, hey, have them go, the crowds go away, like, we're tired, we need a break. And Jesus is like, no, you feed them. Paul, I don't know if anyone would ever call the Apostle Paul lazy. 
So a lot of times people will quote the Apostle Paul on grace and then talk about how Jesus has done everything for us and we have to do nothing. And I'm like, you would just need to look at the life of the Apostle Paul and know that he couldn't have possibly been saying that. So what I'm getting at is this, is that when you receive grace in a way, no, when you receive the teaching of grace in a way that somehow makes you feel less motivated or that you need to do less, I don't think you actually receive the grace that the Lord's talking about. Because I think grace enables you to do more than you can do humanly. And I believe in pace, and I believe in rest, and I believe in having a Sabbath day, and I, and I am, if, I, if there's an area of me being religious, it's in the, me keeping Sabbath days. I believe in keeping a Sabbath day. Um, I try to have every Saturday and Monday when I'm home, I just try to do nothing except for things that are fun. So I believe in rest, but I think that once you rest, then you should work. You know, the Lord worked six days and then took a Sabbath day. I think that's a really good pace. I think if you work six days building a world, then you should take a day off. Some people that talk about rest have actually never worked. No, I watch people take six days off and work one and preach rest. And I'm like, no, that's not rest. That's laziness. And I don't know about you, but the idea that the Lord does everything that I do, uh, I have, that the Lord does everything feels very powerless to me. It feels like, you know, like I'm in a random kind of like, this is kind of like the lottery, and the Lord just like, boop, you pop out, and like, oh, that ball popped out, and I'm going to bless you. I hear people teach stuff, and I'm like, First of all, I don't think most people, let me say this, that's not fair. There are some people I hear teach, I don't actually think they take their teaching to its final end and think through how people are going to behave when you say that. Because a lot of, and I'm thinking of some teachers, mostly where I go to conferences and I hear other people teach, and a lot of it's good, and I learn a lot from it, by the way. I don't think like, wow, Bethel's the only people that, you know, have it going on. I, I just told you, Mark Sharona. I, I totally rock my life. I get a lot of stuff. I go to almost every session when I go to other people's, when I go to conferences, I go to almost every, every other session that I, I do, do the sessions I don't, I sit in the sessions I don't teach when I'm trying to say in English. Because I feel like I have a lot to learn. But this one subject that seems current, like it seems like it keeps flowing, it keeps being taught places, like I just cringe. And I think you either don't have other, you don't have students that are following you, or you don't have disciples, or you don't have children. Because if you teach that, the ultimate end is that, and that is not the kingdom. I think you should test your teaching to its ultimate end and make sure that you like the end. I'm going to digress for just a second. I'm going to come back to work in a second. But eschatology is one of those places. Like I began at the end and worked backwards. Like the eschatology I was taught kept me from having an education. It kept me from being motivated to change the world. It kept me from being motivated to bring the promises of, uh, of the past into the, into the future. It kept me from having hope for the nations. It kept me from having a legacy for my children's children. All of those things are clear in the Bible. I'm simply saying, I tested that. And I'm like, that can't be right because it has all the bad fruit. Like the eschatology, the fruit of that eschatology, like the seed, I don't know what the seed's going to look like, so I have to grow it. And when I grow that eschatology, it looks like that, and that is not the king. So I'm saying sometimes you have to grow the tree of, your, the, of the seeds of your teaching and make sure that it actually grows good fruit. Because if it doesn't, there's something wrong with the root. Are you with me? So when I hear people teach things that basically says, you know, Jesus did it all, and you, you have to do nothing. Just make sure you stay faithful. I'm like, I, I just don't know. That feels like, it feels like, it feels like promotion is so random. It feels like you can't do anything to be promoted. And if you do anything, then it's works, and works are like, you know, filthy rags, and you're just evil, and you don't want to go back to evil. You're going to be like the Galatians who are bewitched. And it feels like, it, that to me, I don't know, maybe you're different personalities in this room, of course, but that feels so powerless. It feels like all I can do is just wait on the Lord and pray, Holy Spirit, please promote me. And like, I just don't think that has anything to do with the kingdom. I look at Jesus' teaching, for instance, the ten, 
you know, the minas and the, the um, talents. I look at parables like that, and all over the place, Jesus said, do something, and you'll be rewarded. Do something with what I give you, and you'll be rewarded. So the idea that I sit back and do nothing, and then Jesus just like, ah, well, let's just, woo, okay, you came up. I don't know if you like that, but I don't even think that's the kingdom. And what I'm getting at is that it pays to prepare. I think that grace enables you to do what you couldn't do before. I think that God rewards faithfulness. I think he rewards courage, faithfulness, perseverance. These are three things that the Lord speaks, the Lord Jesus speaks about over and over, that he actually rewards perseverance, faithfulness. How about this excellence? There's something about you doing what you do in a way that you've never done before, or that no one, ever, or no one else does, or you get where I'm going. I want to ask you some simple questions. This is no, there's no shame, all right? I don't believe in shame. Like, I don't believe in shame. I don't believe you should leave your li- lead your life through shame. And I think that shame slips in really easily. Like, I compare myself to someone else and I don't measure up. I'm never good enough. The culture's not good enough. All of these things. And so it's really difficult sometimes when you're trying to motivate people by saying, look at the fruit of some of your life and not look, go, okay, take on shame and be motivated. That's not where I'm going. You know, I have failed at least as much as most anyone in this room. But I just want to ask you some questions, not to shame you, but to think through, are you, taking, are you making the most of this opportunity? Because you can sit here today and go, those are, great, those are great plans. I'm like, what are you doing about today? Like, if you're given a book to read in, in, in third year, do you actually read it? Because, and I, okay, because the Lord cares. If you're giving something to do by your, the person you're interning for, like, do you do it with excellence? Because what I'm sharing today is actually about that. And sometimes we get like, so like, when I get a job, I'm going to, I'm like, no, I'm actually talking about what you do right now. I'm actually talking about what you're going to do when I finish this teaching and you leave those doors. I'm actually talking about, like, do you do life with excellence? Do you press through? Do you get up in the morning? It, it, maybe you're living with roommates. And do you treat them the way sometime, someday you hope to treat your spouse, even when you don't feel like it? Like, when you get an opportunity on the prayer lines, do you bring your, air ga- your A game? Do you bring your A game? When, you know, it's like, oh, I pray on the prayer lines, you know, it's like, yeah, everybody has to do it. Oh, I came up. It's my turn. It's like, or do you bring your A game? Like, you're like, I'm going to be on the prayer lines tonight. I'm going to spend 20 minutes preparing my heart before I get here. I'm just, I don't care that you do that. I think you understand. I'm like, I'm saying, whatever you do, you bring your A game. It's like, I want to be Catherine Coleman. Okay, you got an opportunity on the prayer line. (laughs) I mean, you could be the person everybody wants to wait for because you bring your A game. You're not compete. I'm not saying compete with someone else so you'll be the best. I'm saying compete with yourself. You bring your A game. People want to get in line for you because you bring the most hope and there's 100 people in the line and you're not like, you, you hope they all are like that, but you come and you're like, okay, my job, people are going to come to you. I don't feel very good. I got a headache. You know, I feel down. I've worked really hard this week. I'm on the prayer line. Oh, okay, I'm going to bring my A game. You know, there's going to be 10 people in line. I'm going to get to touch those 10 people, and I am going to make sure they leave with hope. Whether they get healed or not, that's Jesus' problem. I'm going to do my best, but I can bring hope to them. I'm going to have a prophetic word for some of them. I'm going to start getting some stuff, and I'm going to bring my A game. I'm saying, that's what makes a difference. You don't realize it, but you are working for promotion right there. Especially when you don't feel like it. Do you get this? I think when you don't feel like it, you're actually getting more credit. I actually do believe in credit. I think you're actually getting more credit when you don't feel like it. I think when it's a sacrifice, you actually get more credit for it. (laughs) 
You know, everybody in marriage, if you've been married very long, everybody remembers like the amazing times you had. I've sat in an office with people in marriage counseling who are in the middle of working through a divorce. And the guy's talking about all the amazing things, and it can be the girl too, but I'm thinking of some circumstances, where the guy is repeating um, expensive trips he took his wife on. It's like, that's fine, but a marriage isn't built on expensive trips. It's built daily on you picking up your freaking socks when she's asked you to 25 times. And instead of just picking up the socks, you go and, say, and go do the laundry once in a while. If, it's, if that's kind of her responsibility and you have yours. You know what I'm saying? Whatever it is. It's like you do something she's not expecting is my point. You get up and make the bed because she asked you to pick up socks. You know, it's just like you just do more. That's what a marriage is built on. It's not built on the, on, on, on the trip to, to, to Paris. The trip to Paris is fine if you pick up the socks. It's not going to make up for the socks. I'm just being real with you. Like, a Paris trip will never wake up for you picking up your underwear or doing whatever it is she wants you to do that she asked you to do that you don't think is a big deal. <laughs> and your relationship with... <sighs> I'm just telling you, I can't... I, I mean, it, it, the, those great experiences are fine if they're built on daily. I show you I love you because I do things that I don't care about, but you do. That's what builds a marriage, and that's what builds a relationship with the Lord. And, and if you think about it, that's what builds friendships. And so, you know, we all want, listen, I want them too. I want these mountaintop experiences that, you know, when we sit around the dinner table, my kids go, oh, we went to Disneyland. We had the best time when we were five years old. I'm like, I want those times, but I am smart enough to know that great raising children doesn't have anything to do with going to Disneyland. It has to do with what I do every day with my kids. And so sometimes we measure our whatever, and right now I'm talking about our parenting. We measure our parenting by these 10 experiences we gave our kids that were cost a lot of money or they did something special. And it's like, that's not your parenting. There are people that have no money that couldn't do that with their kids that are good, great parents because <laughs> they're in there every day doing what the kids need every day. And if they need discipline, they give them discipline even though they go in their, their room and cry after they do it because they know you need this. I don't want to do this, but you need this. You need discipline. Sometimes I have to tell you the hard things. I'm saying, you want to build a relationship with God? Do you want to be promoted? You do the stuff when you don't feel like it. This is not brain surgery. But sometimes, you know, after three years of school, and you're like, I got all this stuff, and it's like, yeah, you did. That's great. You know, you've been to Paris. You got to live here for three years. This is all great. It's not going to change your life. Unless you do what you learn to do in the big meeting every day. Unless you do that every day. What you, what you learn to do, you do it every day. You want to be a great Bible teacher? Awesome. Let me tell you how to do it. You should write this down. Read your Bible every day. Make a commitment today to read your Bible every day. If you get up in the middle of the night, like I do, 3 o'clock in the morning typically, and I, I haven't read my Bible, I'm like, oh crap, I didn't read my Bible. I turn my little light on. Well, now I actually read it off my phone. I used to have to turn my little light on. I, read, I, tur I got my phone. I go to the next. I'm in Hebrews right now. I'm going to go to chapter 3. I'm going to read a chapter before I fall back to sleep. It's not for God. It's for me. <laughs> like, you know, and, and, and actually, I don't even know if I'm going to ever remember what I just read. But I know that I'll remember that I read. It's like, did that do anything for you? You know, it seems meaningless. What's meaningful is that I think of myself as a man who keeps his word. And where I fail, and we all fail... I get back up, and I don't beat myself up and go, oh, my God. Oh, I said I was going to do it, and I missed three days. Oh, wow, I was on the plane, never read one time. Uh, and I'm like, okay, so I read 362 days this year. That's still pretty good. That will win a championship in almost any sport. 
and I just get back up, and I just do what I said I'd do. If I have a bad, you know, the other day we were coming home from uh, Weaverville in my Corvette. My wife doesn't like to go fast, which seems kind of stupid when you own a Corvette. I'm a really good husband. I can't say I was, but I am. I can't say I was, but I can say this. I've always had a heart to be a really good husband. I look back now at the standard that I live, and I look back at my early years, and I think, oh. (laughs) I'll remind you of the story I told you. On our honeymoon night, I set my pants on the bed. This is an absolute true story. And I said, put those pants on. She said, those don't fit me. I said, don't ever forget that. That was my opening statement. You know, I was being funny. It was my sarcastic sense of humor. But it totally fit my, like, women do this, men do that. You know. So we're coming home from Weaverville. (laughs) I know, some of you are like. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I know, I feel the same way. (laughs) But I will say this, I've always loved my wife, and I've always tried to do what I thought was right. I just didn't know what was right, you know. So that was, uh, um, yeah, that was before Bill. (laughs) That was BJ, you know, before (laughs) Bill Johnson. So we're coming home, and, and uh, my wife doesn't like to dry, go fast at all, and so, you know, we have an hour ride, and, and she typically, well, this is, how, this is how bad she doesn't like to ride with me. She drives, typically, everywhere we go, because I finally said, this is a great way to, to have a great marriage. Instead of me driving, you drive, and that way, you'll always like how fast we go, and that seemed to work great. But since we got my Corvette, she rides with me. So we're coming home, and she's, you know, and, I, and I'm going really slow. And she's like, you're going too fast. Whatever. <laughs> By the time we got home, there was a lot of stress in the car. I was pretty upset, and she was pretty upset. And I was upset because I thought I was making a good effort, and she was upset because I was still going too fast. Whatever. <laughs> that was my attitude when we got out of the car. Whatever. You know, I was, I was in, no matter what I do, it's not good enough. That's the mode I was in. And she was, on, she was in, you don't listen to me. You don't make me feel safe. Whatever. Yeah, I woke up the next morning, and I'm like, you know, you're kind of a bonehead. Like, the best thing you could have done in the world is put your wife in a sports car and drive like it was a station wagon. You wouldn't have liked it, but she would have loved it, and you would have built more trust with your wife. And instead, you had to be an idiot to make a point. Well, Whatever. Yeah, I don't know how you guys work, but, like, I have a lot of pride. So I thought, okay, Lord, that's good. We'll just, you and I will just, we'll do it different next time. It's like. My, oh, can't we just do it different next time? No, you have a mess to clean up. So I got up that morning and getting ready, and I said, hey, please forgive me for being a jerk yesterday. She's like, oh, that was all right. I said, no, it wasn't all right. You know, I- I'm sorry. Like, you trusted me to be in the car. I didn't make you feel safe. I made excuses to allow my, my arrogance to, like, make you feel not comfortable. I'm really sorry for that. So she's like, 
I forgive you. A couple days later, we're going someplace, and she's in the car, and I'm like, this is my chance to repent and bring forth fruit. <laughs> Good fruit of repentance. So we had drove around most of the day, just going places, and she said, well, you're driving so much slower. <laughs> I know. I said, it's my job to make you feel safe when you're in my car. She's like, oh, I love when you behave like that. <laughs> and there should be some rewards, I was thinking. <laughs> I'm thinking you should reward your man for taking good care of you. I didn't say that because then she would think I was working for reward. Or she'll know I was, or whatever. <laughs> so the last thing I, I want to just put into words is another way you get promoted is through humbling yourself. And that means when you're wrong, you just... You, you know, I, I don't know if you're like this, but part of my challenge is I'm never completely wrong. Uh, n- never too strong. I'm seldom th- completely wrong. And so I'm all right. Like, if you want to say you're sorry, then I'll say I'm sorry because I was only like, maybe I was like, maybe 51% of this. Are, are you ever like that? And it's like, you know what? I, I, it's, not, it's not my job to humble someone else. It's only my job to humble me. And by the way, in my marriage, I'm almost always the guy who's wrong. So I, I wasn't referring to that. Usually when Kathy and I have a, uh, you know, when we have a problem in our marriage, it's probably, there's a 90% chance <laughs> I'm the one who's wrong. Because I live with Miss, like, I like peace. I don't like to inconvenience people. I serve till it hurts. Um, I, my love language is servanthood. I almost always have a good attitude. So, you know, living with the angels, like, it's kind of, sometimes it sucks because <laughs> when you act like an idiot, like, immediately you know you have because the other person hasn't given you many reasons to act like that. But in life, I'm sorry, I'm boring you. In life, most of the time in life, you know, and I'm talking about, like, with reference to our staff, people I work with every day, students, uh, people who write me on Facebook, da-da-da, I mean, you know. Typically, there's more than one pe- person. You know, we say it takes two to fight. So it's a little harder to say you're sorry when you know someone else is at fault too. But let me say this. If you know that God loves humility, and that when you humble yourself, He exalts you, it's a whole lot easier to remind yourself that if I stay low, even though it kind of makes the other person's case, the Lord's going to reward me. And let me finish with this. I have a friend. Wow. We should pause. (laughs) That's like one of those Bill Johnson comments, like, deep. I have a couple of friends, actually. But two of my friends got in a, you know, they they have been pretty much in this, five-year war with one another. And I love them both. And they have contrasting ministries, really beautiful contrasting ministries. Both their ministries are beautiful. But the two of them don't get along very well at all. They, I would say at best, they tolerate one another. And so I have a lot of influence with uh, both of them, uh, especially with one of them. So I, so it, their conflict has been going on, going on, going on. And, and of course, you know, how, you know how a conflict's gone on so long, you don't actually know who started it. It's kind of like, and you said this, yeah, but you said that. And it's like, it's been going on so long, I don't even know where it started. But it started in the hearts of people. So, and, and, I, you know, and, I've, been, and I've sat with them many times, and I would say it's pretty 50-50. Like, it's not even 49-51, it's pretty 50-50. Like, they both do stupid stuff. Inconsiderate, stupid stuff. At times. 
And they both love each other at times. So they both kind of have good stuff they've done. And they both, you know, you know where I'm going? So I said to one of, my, the one of the two friends, I, said, I got him aside and I said, you're always asking me what you should do. Oh, what should I do? What should I do? I said, I got an idea. He said, what is it? I said, why don't you go and ask for forgiveness for everything you've ever done wrong to them? And here's the list of like 12 things that we've talked about many times. He said, well, if I do that, they're going to think it's only my fault. I said, it doesn't matter what they think. It only matters what God thinks. So we talked for a long time. He said, I need to go pray about it. I said, that's fine. I'm, I'm ending here. So he went and prayed about it, and he said, okay. The Lord, I talked to the Lord, and he said, that's what I should do. So he went and apologized for all the things he'd ever done, and he also wrote them a letter, followed up with a letter, and said, these are the things I've done. All the things they've been accusing him of, by the way. And by the way, they have their things, right? Well, hoping, my hope was that it would stimulate humility on the other side. But it didn't. What it stimulated was, that's the point I've been trying to make. You've done everything wrong. Which was what he was afraid would happen. Which we both acknowledge could happen. And so he walked away from there. And they immediately wrote me, the other side said, see, I've been telling you, it's all his fault. And it seemed like a failed experiment. I think it was the right thing to do. Because I actually think God sees. And so when he got the letter that said, I forgive you, I've been trying to tell you for five years, these are the things you're doing. This is what's caused the whole problem. And he, he writes me, he said, what should, he calls me, he said, what should I do about this? I said, you should thank the Lord that he sees. Because when you humble yourself, not them, God exalts you. In due season. In due season. Are you with me? I know it's been a little scattered today, but these are the secrets of success. If you write these down and you didn't get anything else these other three years, but you get this, I do extraordinary, ordinary things in an extraordinary way. I persevere. I act the same way when I'm not passionate as I do when I'm passionate. I do more than's required of me. I don't try to fix things with a Paris trip. I did live daily in my life, every day, being consistent. And when I'm not, I go fix it. I go take the blame, even if I'm not 100% wrong. If I'm 10% wrong and they're 90% wrong, I still ask for forgiveness because I'm taking care of my 10% with the Lord. I don't say, I'm sorry for my side. I say, I'm sorry. I did this. I don't even talk about their side. When I live like that, it's amazing where I end up in the long run. Would you stand? Anybody feel like a little bit of conviction? Anybody feel a little bit of motivation? That's right. I was going to shame you into. <laughs> Put your hand on your heart. Let me pray for you. You should sing like some songs of comfort over them. <laughs> Holy Spirit, I thank you for these times. I thank you for the dry times, the winters. I mean, I don't really want to thank you for that, but I know what the fruit is. So I thank you for winter seasons when you're working on root, and you know, one can actually see how beautiful a work you're doing in my life. And I thank you for the fruit times when we're all aware of, like, this is such an amazing season. I'd like to live here forever. Lord, I just release grace that allows me to have ability to do what I couldn't do before. And I thank you, Lord, that it is true that you always make up the difference. And where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So I'm thankful for the times I fail that I actually get more grace to get up and to run again. I break the power of regret in the room. Maybe people this morning hearing this and like, uh, uh, I've done it wrong. And Lord, I pray that you would remind them that we've all done it wrong, but that's not an excuse to not do it right now. And I'm, I, Lord, and I just want to remind everybody in the room that we're responsible for what we know. So from this day forward, we're responsible for today's stuff. And Lord, I just bless in Jesus' name as one of the fathers of this place. I just bless these daughters and these sons in Jesus name thank you so much for listening to me.